there's increasing levels of digital and technical literacy required to feel like you have agency over the way the world is moving. So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. The need for people with coding skills is growing. As a result, schools across America are adding coding to the curriculum and programs like Hour of Code are growing in popularity. But recently, I heard a friend express skepticism about whether these programs for coding in elementary schools make sense when you consider that by the time these students enter the job market, the skills they're learning today will likely be obsolete. And also that the future of coding will be done by computers. I wanted to take a closer look at the need for coding, so I reached out to a former student and asked her to share her expertise on coding, the modern workplace, and the future of work. So my name is Haley Schof, and I am the Vice President of Impact at an organization called LaunchCode. And so LaunchCode is a nonprofit organization that helps people gain skills and get jobs in technology. So we help people from non-traditional backgrounds primarily learn to code for free and then get jobs and apprenticeships um, to help break into careers in tech and get upwardly mobile jobs and careers that they might not otherwise be able to access. So I oversee all of our student and candidate and sort of community facing programs. Okay. So when you're talking about non-traditional backgrounds, you're talking about they have uh, college degrees or they usually have a high school degree. Um, what kind of a target market are the people who are going to be uh, that you're going to be looking for for these internships? It's pretty wildly diverse. So we like to say we serve people ages about 17 to 70. Um, and that's people, we've placed people as young as 17, as old as 70 into jobs. Um, but predominantly people that don't have traditional credentials that you'd be looking at for a job in technology. So that people without, some people have a four-year degree, but most don't. 70% um, of our students are making less than $30,000 a year when they start our program. So predominantly you know, people on lower income spectrum and really wide diversity in terms of kind of race, class, gender, um, you know, just general backgrounds. Um, so I would say if we had a, had an average student, probably somebody in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who maybe has had some exposure to higher education, but doesn't have a degree, and it, but, you know, feels like they're underemployed and has a set of, wants to get involved in a more active, creative problem solving. Is it people who are high school graduates? We highly encourage people to have a high school degree before they come to us, or at least equivalency, just because that dramatically increases their chances of employability. Right. That's just one of, it's one of those success factors that works for you guys. Yeah. So then, um, just so that people can get a sense of what it is that Launch Code does, like what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah. So Launch Code has really came out of this idea of solving the tech talent gap, which is we originally started in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Louis is a great city um, to really personify the idea of the tech talent gap. But then you have a city like St. Louis um, where their companies repeatedly say that they need people to work in technical roles. Um, there's some stat out there that I think 1 million computer programming jobs in the US will go unfilled by 2020. So there's a huge demand for um, programming jobs, different types of tech jobs. But at the same time, there's a huge dearth of people that actually have the skills to do those jobs. And then on the other side of the coin, you have populations oftentimes in number of different cities that are unemployed, underemployed, don't have pathways to economic advancement and opportunity. And you see a mismatch there in between people that potentially have some potential but lack the credentials and this huge pool of jobs that need 
people with those skills. And with something like programming, you really don't need a four-year college degree in order to be a successful programmer. You just need to know how to program. And we've proven through our education programs that you can get someone to that point in about six months of training. So what we do is we teach some, run someone through a six-month education program that's part-time and can work you know, with their schedule while they hold a different type of job or whatever their other obligations are. And so they do that and it's all free to the student. And then we do some um, like bridge programming and job prep, resume review, mock interviews, that kind of thing. And then we actually place people in apprenticeship roles with companies. So it de-risks the hiring process on the company side. So the company can take someone on that doesn't have a college degree um, or otherwise traditional credentials um, for 90 days at about $15 an hour and really coach that person up and get a feel for kind of a try before you buy model, I guess, on the company side. And then at the end of that 90 days, they can have the option to hire the person full time. So that's kind of cool because so you're you're basically giving the people who are coming to you are preparing themselves to take a paid internship. Mm-hmm. And then you're serving those companies by providing them with someone who's like vetted and prepared to go into the work that they need to do. Exactly. So you're kind of like a bridge between the talent and the need in a exactly. sense. Yeah, it was, it's kind of interesting. So like um, one of our founders initially is Jim McKelvey, who was the founder of Square. Um, Square, the mobile payments company. It's kind of an interesting story. So Jim McKelvey and Jack Dorsey, who's also the CEO of Square and CEO of Twitter, um, they're both originally from St. Louis. And they tried to start Square in St. Louis. Um, Jim McKelvey had this glass blowing company and he was lost a transaction with somebody selling blown glass and realized that there needed to be a better way for people to be able to pay credit card systems for small businesses or artisans or things like this. So they were trying to launch Square in St. Louis but they found that every time they tried to hire a computer programmer, they would find out that they had like stolen the best talent from the company next door. And there just wasn't enough talent to go around to build a, co- a company the size that they wanted, size and scope of what they wanted Square to be in St. Louis, which is a really shame because you have cities like St. Louis, Kansas City, Tampa, a lot of the places that we're in that could really benefit from these huge companies that need a lot of technical talent. So, you know, they took Square out to San Francisco. Obviously, it did very well you know, like IPO, they had a fair amount of success. And then, but kind of in the back of Jim's head, it was always, what would you need to do to make the city of St. Louis the kind of place that could support a business like Square? Um, and I think it's, that's a, a narrative that's really um, quintessential of St. Louis, but it's not exclusive to St. Louis. There's a lot of, of these cities, particularly in middle America, that have these huge tech talent gaps and could really benefit from being able to attract and keep the type of companies that employ programmers. So it's sort of a virtuous cycle. Well, beyond just the skills of coding, what's interesting about it to me is that even if you're a coder in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. it means that the kind of jobs that you're going to get are going to be limited simply because there's not enough of you. And if you could create that volume, right? Like that changes everything. Well, and the cool thing about coding too, is if you, there's a lot of opportunities for remote work, which has really interesting implications for, you know, you don't necessarily need to have the companies located in St. Louis for the people to be able to access employment. So I could, you know, there's definitely people that have gotten apprenticeships through LaunchCode and then their second or third job has been with a Bay Area, like big name Bay Area companies, but they can stay in St. Louis and work there. Um, and all, same for people that often live in like rural areas, um, you right. know, really outsource talent overseas. You could think of it as outsourcing talent to just different parts of the country than we typically associate with these high tech roles. Right. And then you can just match the talent with wherever the need might be if you if you have the system and the network in place to do it. 
Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me a little bit about your job. So uh, maybe before I go and ask you about your job, I had a person who asked me last week. They got angry because their school was pushing coding skills. Um, and they, they asked, Do, does every kid need to take coding in elementary school? Why are we pushing this? And after what you said, it kind of sounds like maybe it's a, a good idea um, just to give them a, a run past it as an option because there is such a need for it around the country. Yeah, I think, um, you know, digital literacy is a really big buzzword. And I think there's two sides to that argument. One is, is every student going to grow up to be a coder? No. Should every student grow up to be a coder? Definitely not. However, increasingly our world is governed by highly technological systems. And whereas, you know, you know decades ago, it was about knowing how to use the internet or knowing how to use Microsoft Word or knowing how to build a blog, there's increasing levels of digital and technical literacy required to feel like you have agency over the way the world is moving. And so living in a world where so much of the, these, so many jobs are moving in the way of these technical systems and just so much of how our world works is caught up in programs that are written in code, being able to code just gives you a lot more agency and helps you feel empowered to understand and access just the systems that govern our world. Right. So having some level of coding and technical literacy from a young age forward, I think just helps people to feel more engaged and empowered in that way. So I think that there's a, a definitely an argument to be made for increasing the universality and accessibility of just basic coding literacy. Right. And then there's sort of the secondary component of that, which is making access to technical jobs for people that want them just more broadly accessible, particularly for in higher education for adults. So let me get back to the question I started to ask you yeah. then. Um, what kind of skills are part of your job? Because one of the things that we talk about is this um, idea of the new world of work. So what are the skills that are necessary for you to do your job effectively? And do you think you were prepared for that effectively through your traditional education? Um, yeah, what are the skills needed to do my job? That's a good question. Um, my job's an interesting one because I do a lot of sort of strategic management and program management and people management. Um, so I oversee our teams that plan and execute our education programs. So there's a little bit of technical knowledge, you know, engaged mm -hmm. um, there around just what we're teaching and how we improve upon that. But more than anything, my job is really managing people. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, being able to kind of stay on top of um, how our programs are performing, adjustments that we need to make and do project planning. And so I guess to summarize it, I do a lot of thinking forward about where the programs need to go mm -hmm. and then directing people to make those adjustments and then analyzing the outcomes of those things so that we can kind of continue that cycle. It's kind of, I mean, you make it sound very, very simple when you say it, but at the same time, you're trying to develop programs for coding and develop uh, an internship system for coding. And I, I kind of get the impression that like, that doesn't, that hasn't necessarily existed before. So you have to innovate to some extent, correct? Oh yeah, definitely. No. And I think um, to, to be somewhat blunt, I don't think that my like, traditional education prepared me very well for the job that I'm doing now. In a lot of ways, the jobs that I've had up to this point prepared me more for the job that I'm doing now than my, than the actual formal education. Um, you know, a lot of it is being able to kind of, yeah, separate, you know, work through data, separate the signal from the noise, 
integrate and manage people and get them on board mm-hmm. and bought in and moving in a direction. A lot of it is just reading and writing and synthesizing information. Right. Just kind of creative and critical thinking that I don't think I was really challenged to do a lot of my education. Part of our podcast is to talk about what schools could do differently. Not necessarily say that schools are, are failing. We're not saying that. It's just that we want to say, what did we do well? What could we do better at? And how do we adjust? So what, what things were you taught that you know were right? What, what part of your education feels right and was very helpful to you? I took a class in college with this professor, this guy named Eric Kester who teaches entrepreneurship at Georgetown, where I went to school, um, that I, is probably the only professor I still keep in touch with to this day from college. And it was an entrepreneurial thinking class where basically it was put more of the onus on the students to present an idea of a problem and then go out and get customer feedback and go out and and really simulated the idea of launching a small business and executing on it and iterating on it and being able to speak to it. Um, so that I think sticks out as like what I feel yeah. like education should be. Uh, and I, I often say like in college, all the, most of the skills that I use on my job now, I gained from doing extracurricular activities in college. So I managed the alternative spring break program and learned how to manage people and learned how to project plan and learned how to do a lot of right. things. I did, you know, I managed a prison education program and that gave me a lot of the, a lot of skills that I transferred to my current job those in my mind stick out as like the things that prepared yeah. me. I always think about how like managing people is a really hard skill, right? I don't think that we can do projects and projects the way that we do and, and expect to teach people how to manage people. I don't think a, a group project for a day does that. You know, I, I look more to, and, and, but at the same time, I understand why teachers would want to limit some of those group projects because of the, all the problems that arise because of them. Like if a kid is sick for a one-day project or if, you know, if you do a longer-term project, it creates issues. But um, I think that it's really important now. And if I could go back, I probably would have extended some of those projects and made them longer just to force people in. All the stuff that we are frustrated by is probably the things that students need to be experiencing, like managing that and adjusting work mm-hmm. and um, redistributing assignments with people when you, when you lose someone from your group. I think those are all things that could help. Yeah. The other thing I always tell, I, I, I've said this a lot over the years, is like, obviously, we know each other from speech team in high school. Like yeah. I was on I did extemporaneous speaking on the speech team. And that was one of the most valuable, transferable skills and experiences I've ever had where I don't know, particularly the speech team in general and just public speaking and presentation and being able to tell a story and, and have confidence in front of a group of people, obviously very valuable. But the event that they would have you do, do, and I guess I'll explain it a little bit, is you know, you would keep tabs on news cycles and keep an archive of all of the news that was up to date. And then on the day of the competition, go in and that you could draw a question about news, you know, any sort of topic from the news from the past month. Mm-hmm. And then have to, using the information that you had archived, pull together the best speech that you could that made the best argument for or against the commentary in a short, in a very short period of time, and then deliver it in a compelling way. And that wow. the capacity to, one, kind of be aware of the world, and then have to quickly synthesize information on your feet, and just do the best you can with what you have, and then convince somebody else yeah. of that, is... Yeah the skill set that makes is like somewhat all encompassing from what mm-hmm. anyone's successful in any kind of like external facing role. Um, and I should tell people like 
Haley was my uh, student at Fremd High School, um, the second one that we've had on the podcast talking about this job. But um, I think that what was really cool about that activity and speech was that you get thrown a question and you have to completely structure a response from nothing. And you have no guarantee how anyone else is going to do it or how they're going to focus. And then um, like the whole ability is to make structure in order out of something that is essentially a chaotic question. And they try to throw curveballs at you. I think that might be the most accurate depiction of what life is like uh, the modern world of work has become, right? Um, because you can't, that's not something that you can have a computer do. We talked a lot before about how if a computer can structure a problem, well then, you don't need a human to do that, and that job kind of goes away. You know, last time we talked, um, you talked about attending a conference, I want to say it was in New Orleans, where they talked about how technology is affecting jobs and what the most common jobs are. I don't know if you remember that conversation. But yeah. I'd like you to like, tell me a little bit about what they told you about the most common jobs for men and women. Yeah, so there was a, it was the Jobs for the Future conference, um, which is a Boston-based organization that thinks about kind of the future of work, and their keynote speaker at the conference was put up some numbers about how the most common job for men in America is as a driver. Um, so whether that's truck driver, bus driver, et cetera. Um, and then the most common job I think for women in America is frontline retail. So working with cashier in a variety of industries or doing that sort of frontline retail work. And those are the two, two, either the two most or two of the most susceptible jobs to automation over the next two decades. And, you know, there's already self-driving cars are becoming very prevalent. When you think about trucking and that sort of industry, there's a lot of room for self-driving trucks. There's a lot of already McDonald's is at the stage where they're having cashierless point of sale systems and doing away with those jobs. And so, you know, whether there's a lot of nuance to that argument as well, but, I think what, the heart of it is that it just shows how unstable and kind of changing the future of work is going to be in right. that you know, some of the jobs that employ the largest number of people across America are at the highest risk of just being done away with entirely. And so what does that mean for large segments of the population and in terms of, you know, being automated out of a job and being reskilled? And I think our, we're rapidly approaching a point where there's going to be a huge seismic shift in you know what where the core of jobs are in America and we're just fundamentally unprepared to retrain people at the scale at which that's going to start to affect people. So in a sense not only is launch code maybe something interesting to look at because it's trying to emphasize the skill of coding mm -hmm. but the fact that I, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around the idea that you think you can get a person proficient in the ability to learn how to code in a matter of six months, mm -hmm. because that would then be a, a, a massive shift in the way that we think about coding. You know, like if, if you can prepare someone to be in a coding position or to be a trainable internee within that small amount of time, that's a model that could, I mean, become very necessary if you're talking about massive seismic shifts to, to the workforce, right? Yeah, and I think that's what we see as Launch Code is, you know, it's a coding education program, but more than that, it's sort of a scalable approach to retraining and sort of radically rethinking uh, the future of higher education and how, how can we build systems and institutions um, that are more relevant to the 21st century and more relevant to the immediate needs of the adult working population. Right. Well, 
then in your position, I'm guessing that you said that you had a staff of about 10 before, I believe. Yes. Yeah, okay. So then you do hiring for your staff. One of the things I like to ask anybody who uh, we have on the podcast who's in a position where they hire is, what are the skills that you're actually looking for? So if a person is a, a teacher, a classroom teacher, and they're trying to figure out what people are hiring for, what is it that you look for? What are like the absolute must-haves that you see? Yeah, I think the number one thing we look for is um, mission alignment and someone's willingness to learn, I think. Um, and someone's orientation towards, you know, kind of doing whatever needs to be done and picking up the ball and running with it and being relatively autonomous and kind of a self-starter is probably the word that I'm looking right. for. Most skills can be coached, but like mindset is harder to coach. Um, okay. So someone that has the right mindset and the right passion and excitement for the work that we're doing, I think is the first thing that we look for. And then beyond that, we start to look for, you know, skill competencies and right in whatever it is that we're hiring them for. So in terms of autonomous, like it sounds like you guys are doing some things. You're, you're in some territory that really hasn't been laid out in front of people before. So would you say that you're regularly asking them to figure stuff out that you don't even know how to figure out? And that's a part of their job? Oh yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I'm in the process of setting our goals for this coming quarter. And a lot of it is giving people projects to tackle that, yeah, I don't have an answer to exactly. You know, we, I have a general sense of how we could do things better, hand that off to somebody and say, you know, tackle this. Like we're trying, one of the, you know, we have um, really, really diverse groups of students in our class. Right. It's a, so it's a very interesting cross section of just America. And something we recognize is how can we better kind of capitalize on that and intentionally build community among students. And so, um, building in like you know trying to come up with ways to catalyze students to talk to each other about their stories and their backgrounds and um that sort of cross demographic lines and get people already i think work together at a group base level but using that as a um, mechanism for getting people to connect more broadly and to feel a greater sense of community and break down feelings of imposter syndrome and things like that and so you know we have just been throwing out Lots of ideas, everything from, you know, getting alumni to facilitate that process to different, you know, to setting people up in Hogwarts, like houses and teams to try and build sense of camaraderie within the class. Like there's, you know, so I have a, I have a member of my staff that's working on how do we kind of break that open and do that. And that's, you right. know, there's no roadmap for exactly, exactly how you do that. Right. Well, and, and setting up a, a community and building a sense of connectedness when I'm guessing that a lot of this is remote? Um, well, so we, we primarily focus on having a very um, centered in-person part of the class, at least. Right. Time. But a lot of it is, yeah. Okay. And then in terms of that, like, is your company then, do a lot of your employees work remotely? Is it like centralized in one location or do you find yourselves like yourself and your employees working from distance? Um, so we, our primary team, is all in an office, but then we have staff members in five different cities. Okay. Sort of remotely in that they're disconnected from our main team. Right. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about is this idea of digital literacy and extending the idea of digital literacy from like getting someone to read and getting someone to write, but um, extending that then into the idea of like, can you communicate across many platforms? Can you connect with people across a variety of different ways? One of the 
one of the things that we talk about in terms of literacy is can you communicate across many different platforms? Um, so um, when a person comes to work for your company, or, and, and another thing we talked about was like, do you, uh, can they communicate on social media? So what I wanted to ask is like, in order for a person to, to work and communicate within your company, like how many tools would they be using? How does that communication take place? And how important is social media to communication in your company? Yeah, so we, I mean, we use email, um, we use Slack, uh, pretty is kind of the core communication tool that we use, both in our education programs and for our regular staff. Um, so, as, you know, and then we have Google Hangouts and video conferencing software and that kind of thing. So, I'd say those are really the three main platforms. Okay. Work with. Um, you know, we don't do a ton of social media based communication internally, but we do have, you know, a marketing team that does a lot of communicating out to the broader community community that we interact with and so definitely people that are working on those things here okay so then do you think with time a program like yours continues or do you think that um if schools pick up this the 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 idea of coding mm -hmm. would it be uh, something that would threaten your business or is it more like you feel like this gap is always going to exist you know, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to say definitively, but I think, I think people overemphasize the importance of K-12 coding education and okay. underemphasize the importance of workforce development in tech. Yes, there's, if we start teaching every child in kindergarten how to use code.org today, right. that probably will hopefully pay some dividends, um, you know, 20 years from now. But the truth is there's a huge, you know, everyone over the age of 20 didn't get any, you know, from 20 to 90. Yeah, exactly. Didn't get that, didn't get that education um, growing. And, and the gulf in jobs are for people, you know, 18 and over now. Um, and it's going to be that way for at least a decade before right. you have a, a population that was, you know, raised around more computer science education in the workforce. And there's going to be a huge amount of people that are in their 40s and 50s that need to be retrained over the next decade into more right. technology. And so, you know, I think it's hard to predict and extrapolate out anything more than one to two decades, but right. that uh, for at least over the next two decades, what we're doing is going to be mission critical to society. Right. Uh, so in a way, like what your company is doing is immediate and necessary and is focused on a generation of people who had no experience with those code skills. And quite honestly, as you were talking, it, it kind of occurred to me that there's no technology that a first or a second grader is going to dive into and start to understand that isn't going to be transformed in our rapidly changing world by the time that they leave school. Yeah. And even if that's the case, even if a person who is in their, you know, teens today were raised on a diet of coding, if they go out into the workforce, don't use it and try to transition into something like that, by the time they're in their 40s or 50s, they're going to be starting from scratch anyway. Yeah, so people like people love to talk about, you know, elementary and middle school coding education. And that is, it's very important and it pays dividends in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also sort of like, you know, giving somebody a puppy, like it's very, it's cute. And it's like, there's, people like to, to be involved in it. They like to donate to it. But, but um, you know, there's, it's, what's less cute is to take someone who's 32 years old and dropped out of community college and give them an intensive evening focused education that's, very job skills oriented, but if that person is working at McDonald's and they go through six months of night education for free and then they get a job 
as a back-end mainframe developer at a Fortune 500 company in St. Louis, and they're making $55,000 a year with health benefits, that all of a sudden changes the entire generational narrative for them and their two children that are learning coding in, in elementary school. And, um, you know, their ability to own a home, their ability to pay for their kids' college education. So the um, societal dividends around teaching one adult how to code over a six month period is tremendous, even though it's not, doesn't always necessarily have the same curb appeal, I guess. Well, absolutely, because sometimes, you know, we get all dreamy about the changing fortunes of young children and, you know, and a mission purpose. And what I love about what you just said there is like, out comes your mission. Like you can transform lives. It's not just a class. It's just not just workforce preparation. It doesn't just serve a corporation to have a, an, a, an internship candidate who can do the work, but it provides for whoever it is that can be part of that program, a chance to transform their world. The, you know, the, the world of a McDonald's employee being paid is very, very different from the world of say, um, like you said, a Fortune 500 computer programmer working in a job that has all those benefits. And even just the benefits alone is going to transform the lives of not just them, but their families too. So in that sense, it's really hopeful. It's like terraforming a workforce. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's, I mean, if you look at it, like, you know, if our average student's making less than 30K a year, so say someone's making $26,000 a year and the average starting salary of, um, you know, somebody that completes the program is 52000 a year that the diff the gulf between 26 and 52 is you know the gulf between living paycheck to paycheck and being able to have forward sustainable investment in your future and your life and have more agency over kind of your world and, and the so life and the life opportunities about, that go with it like the the kids in one family to the other have different college opportunities. The The spouse in one relationship to the other has the option to pause and retrain themselves too. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I yeah. think that that's the part that's really fascinating to me and, and really yeah. interesting about what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's, it sounds kind of cool that, you know, basically you're in education, mm -hmm. but you're in a, just a different model of adult education. And the last time we talked, I had never heard this story about Square and how your company was started by someone who was involved in that process too. But I, I like the idea that like, there was basically a skill desert in St. Louis that prevented that company from being able to survive. And if you can create that environment, future companies might be able to come there and, and make a go of it and make that a viable option in that city. Well, yeah, and one, I mean, one really cool, like, so I, um, I have a friend who is the CEO of an artificial intelligence startup in St. Louis. So it's a company called Balto Software. They do, um, they uh, build machine learning, like artificial intelligence to help coach salespeople in real time. And so it's, it's all the things about the future of work kind of coming together, where if someone's a salesperson on the phone, it, they'll, the, the technology will listen to the conversation and coach them about you know, how they could do their sales call better, move forward. Like it's a, it's, so it's, right. I mean, it's really the leading edge of kind of artificial intelligence coaching software. Right. They have, so they're, I mean, and I, you know, I know the three guys that all run the company and their biggest hurdle in building and, and a thriving team in St. Louis is talent pipelines. And they've hired, I think now four people from LaunchCode. Um, and so outside of their CTO, like their main programming team that's like building this really complex artificial intelligence system for this like mm -hmm. startup that's hopefully, you know, on the verge of doing quite well is 
came from came from a program like LaunchCode. So I think you there you see the full circle. Uh, right. like a stage startup that's working on cutting edge technology, leveraging a program like this to kind of continue to be able to exist in St. Louis. That's absolutely fascinating. That sales program. Yeah. It, 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 as you were talking, I had a conversation on Twitter today with some friends about the idea of the suggestive text feature on Google on uh, Gmail. Mm -hmm. Google is scanning your mail to see what you typically write and make suggestions. So you end up looking and the rest of the sentence you were imagining, yeah. common language pops up and you just hit tab and it all just writes itself for you, right? And that's interesting to me because now you're talking about sales skills being directed by AI, like yeah. technology driving the way that we sell will not be a sales coach or the old grizzled salesman, but will be an adaptive text um, scanning feature in your phone conversations, mm -hmm. right? Which is alternately both, like, I wonder about the ethics of that, right? Like a little bit when Google does my talking for me, I feel freaked out. Mm -hmm. But a little, I wonder how that's gonna be with like ethical sales practices and that would make ethics programmable if you have it coaching. So I don't know, it's a whole world, that, uh, that's a whole nother episode that I could talk about right there. Oh yeah, I mean, there's so many, you know, dividends of artificial intelligence and ethics and philosophy are very interesting. You get into self-driving cars and philosophical problems of crashes. And Absolutely, so, well, thank you very much for talking about Launch Code. Um, if people wanna find out more about Launch Code, where should they look? Um, I mean, you can go to our website, launchcode.org. Okay. Uh, or, you know, we're on all typical social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Um, and you, know, you just Google it as well. There's a lot of news stories and stuff like that out there. Well, thank you very much for talking about your mission, the idea of this tech gap, and um, just the kind of work that you're doing to help people improve their lives. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. The So We've Been Thinking podcast is sponsored by EdTech Teachers Innovation and Education Conferences. Join them for their next conference in San Diego on February 4th and 5th. Choose to follow one of the four conference strands, personalized learning, design thinking, project-based learning, or differentiated instruction. Then take a deep dive into this topic over the course of the next two days. Gather each morning for a keynote session, followed by morning and afternoon breakout sessions with your strand. And continental breakfast and lunch are provided each day. For more information, go to innovationinedu.org or reach out to EdTech Teacher on social media. Don't forget to check out their April conference in Woodstock, Vermont.